I want you to come into the story with me. It's, it's a small town called Capernaum, about 1,500 people. Uh, that's roughly the population of Banks. Uh, who do we have here today from Banks? The proud? Yes, Banks all over the place. And congratulations, Banks beat Seaside High School football 49-7 to last Friday night. We want to, yeah, a shout out to Banks. But Capernaum, while about the same population, was much smaller in terms of its physical footprint. The newer homes and banks run someplace between 2,000 and 2,600 square feet. Not so in Capernaum 2,000 years ago. The average house was about 400 to 600 square feet. That's more like the size of a studio apartment. And generally, two or three generations would live there. In our first of three brief stories today, we're going to find Simon. We know him as Peter and Andrew taking Jesus from synagogue home with them. And Simon's mother-in-law is laying there sick in the house. Well, when Jesus came in the front door, the only door, he wouldn't have had to have gone far to see her, would he? She would have been laying on the floor, in the kitchen, in the living room, in the dining room, in the den, and in the bedrooms. Now, they didn't have to worry about a bathroom because it was pretty handy back in Capernaum. You didn't have to have a bathroom in your house because when you need to relieve yourself, you just went outside, you went down the street a couple of blocks, and you went to the public latrine. It was very handy there. It was a sociable place. It was public, open air, and there were no partitions. And so much of the business, uh, gossip of the town, was conducted there as well. Glenn, I'm setting you up for Uganda. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you today. That's right. And so Capernaum was a sleepy little town. Uh, If you had grown up there, put yourself in the story. You grew up. Maybe your dad was a fisherman. You might have grown up going down regularly and early in the morning to see him coming back after fishing at night in the Lake Galilee there because Capernaum was on the northern shore. Just about 100 yards down from your town was where the boats would all be launched there uh, at night and come back in the morning. Uh, You probably uh, knew Peter and Andrew, the brothers, working with their dad and another set of brothers, James and John. You you probably, if you weren't a fisherman, your family was a farmer, and you would go with dad up over the hill about a mile up and down into the fertile northern Jordan River Valley. Life was pretty slow. You were a fisherman. You were a farmer. And you, in your little house, probably shared two walls with neighbors on either side, kind of like condo living. There would have been across your group of homes a wooden or metal, or excuse me, a a rock stairway that would have gone up to the flat roof because the roof was kind of spillover. It, it kind of smelled around Capernaum because it's where the fish were laid out to dry. It's where clothes would be hung. You probably wouldn't take too many family up there because the roofs were a little bit weak and flimsy, but, but it was an extension of your house. The, the biggest nuisance in town was people that were tax collectors Maybe you grew up with Levi. We also know him as Matthew. He'd be down there in the morning counting every fish that Peter, Andrew, James, and John and others had caught, making sure that Caesar in Rome was getting his due in taxes. Nobody liked the tax collectors, but you probably only muttered your disregard under your breath because you could see the garrison of Roman soldiers that lived just out of town. And as much as you hated Rome... At least you kind of had a couple of warm feelings for their commander, a Roman centurion, because he, out of his own money, had just recently built the newest building in town, your synagogue. 
where you would go to church on Sabbath, Saturday, along with all of these other people. Not much exciting happened in your town until, until that renegade 30-year-old that had already gotten kicked out of his hometown, Nazareth, it was rumored was coming to Capernaum. Nazareth, a few miles away, up to the northeast and over the hill, there about 300 people. He had kind of disrupted a uh, synagogue service and they'd run him out of town. Jesus, in fact, did come to Capernaum this day and did come to synagogue. And an amazing thing happened at that first message as he spoke. A demonized man stood and began to shriek. The demon disrupted the service and Jesus spoke to the demon and quieted it. And the demon left the man and the man was now at peace. And everybody said, nothing like this has ever happened before. This man speaks with authority that we have never seen before. Life was going to start getting interesting in Capernaum. By the way, you know that of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that three of those were written by three of the people I just referred to. We're reading from Mark today. And as far as we can tell, Peter, also called Simon in our story, dictated this to Mark a few years later. Matthew, called Levi, was the tax collector that Jesus asked to join his band of 12 apostles. And John, decades later, wrote what we call the Gospel of John as well. Simple guys from Capernaum. Now, as we talk today about God can heal, let me say that this was not, where we are now, was not the way it was in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the first woman and man, and looked at it, and I quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and when God saw what he had created, he said that it was, say it with me if you can, very good. It was as excellent as God himself. There was no locks on our doors. There was no 911. There were no police. There were no soldiers. There were no prisons. There were no judges. There were no attorneys. There were no funeral directors. There were no hospitals, no ambulances. There were no marriage counselors. Nothing was broken. Everything was good. It was very good. And then, and then she and then he ate from the fruit of that only one tree in the garden that they were told, if you ever want to have this all come crashing down, God said, all you have to do is disobey me by eating fruit off that tree. And they did, and it fell in what we call the fall. Creation, it was very good. The fall, everything landed broken. The rest of God's story is reconciliation of putting us back together with God. And then ultimately still in our future glorification when God will bring his new heaven and his new earth and all that was broken will be ultimately restored. And there will be a new tree you read about in the last page of the Bible, a tree, not like the tree around which judgment and sin came in the first chapters of the Bible, but a tree whose leaves give healing to the nation when God brings back everything to what he had originally intended. But the three stories we're looking at today is about God's intervention in his son, Jesus Christ, 
in coming to begin to right the wrongs. And there's one point to each of these three stories. Jesus came to fix the fall. And in his launch of public ministry in Galilee, and especially centered around what he made his base of operations, the small town of Capernaum, Jesus demonstrates that he came to fix it all, holistically helping people in life, fixing broken bodies and broken relationships, and and fixing ultimately a broken relationship with God through forgiveness of sin. Let's take a look at the first story in Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, right after Jesus spoke at synagogue. It says, As soon as they left the synagogue and went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. And so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Wow. Jesus came to fix broken bodies. So he comes home. Dinner's not ready. A woman is sick in bed with fever. Jesus lays hands on her. He just extends a normal social gesture of reaching out and taking her by the hand. And as he lifts her up, the fever goes away and she fixes the meal. All of a sudden, apparently, the rumor began to go through the city. But as pious Jews would have, they wouldn't have left their homes to come until sun had set on Sabbath. And now when they were free to come, they rushed over to that little studio. And there wasn't room for the crowd to come inside. And they were outside the door and beyond. And for some period of time that evening at dusk and into dark, Jesus healed many of all kinds of sicknesses and disease. And he drove out demons of those who were demonized. But apparently, not everybody who was sick got healed. Because that night, as others went home and went to bed, Jesus, early in the morning, while it was still dark, snuck up the hill. And as he often went away in solitude to spend time with his father, then was, was searched for and found by his first followers. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were looking for him and they said, you have to come back to town. The crowd is already assembled. There's more sick people for you to heal. And Jesus said to them, I have to go do what I was called to do, which is to preach in other towns and villages. And so he left unsatisfied people in Capernaum and he went on a little itinerant tour of preaching and healing. But what happened there in Peter's home? Jesus intervened in a woman's body and sickness that had been unleashed on this planet millennia before when sin was introduced. And it was sickness that went on a rampage through every generation and has ravaged people's physically bodies, physical bodies. Sickness that eventually results for all of us in physical death. Never something God's a part of an original plan. Jesus as a sign and a wonder, as an expression of love and grace reached into her life, and she and others were miraculously healed. God can heal. Well, I, uh, I grew up as a little kid in church, and 
we heard about Jesus, but there wasn't much talk really in our church about God can heal. And there certainly wasn't much experience about that. I'll be forever grateful for two things, for many things, two that I'll mention. First of all, that my parents raised me in that church. That was a wonderful church. I love that church. I got to know God's word. I memorized tons of scripture. I love that church. I also secondly love that my parents took us to other churches. And one of those we called aerobic church. In fact, Russell and Kay Green happened to know about this particular congregation because you grew up and met at aerobic church. Can I talk about aerobic church? Okay. Well, when we went to aerobic church, it was much more interesting than our conservative Mennonite church. And, and our family would come. And on this particular uh, day, however, it was this very special thing. I was six years old. My, my brother Jim was 12 or 13, about seven years older than me. And, and I knew as a little kid growing up that Jim looked normal like other kids, but that he didn't get to act normal. He didn't get to play any sports. He didn't get to be engaged in PE classes. And I knew that other kids made fun of him and called him sissy and other stuff because he couldn't be physically active. He looked normal, but he had several congenital heart problems that had been diagnosed early Now about 1960, while there was experimentation going on with open heart surgery with adults, it wasn't common for kids. And so the medical teams were waiting for Jim to get old enough so that they would perform surgery. Our family was very excited. He was about to be scheduled for that. My parents brought Jim forward at aerobic church at the end of a service to be prayed for by the pastor. Now I'm six years old. You know that when you're six years old, other people look massive, massive. And when this aerobic pastor, you know, was wearing white shirt and black suit and was a large person as a pastor, probably larger than most people, who knows, large person, spoke with tremendous volume, kind of perspired by the end of the message and prayed the same way. We went up to aerobic pastor to be prayed for, prayed for. And I think that he took a little flask of oil. We, we do this. We'll do this at the end of the service. Bible talks about anointing with oil. We always do that respectfully. We always ask for, for permission. Would you like for me to anoint you with oil? Just take a little dab on, on, on the hand and often touch people's forehead here. It could, the anointing could be any place else. It could be in any volume of oil. But throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, oil has always been a sign or a metaphor or a type of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jim was anointed with oil. And then the laying on of hands things. Jesus in the story reached down and, and held the hand of the woman. The aerobic pastor was a little more um, uh, strenuous in, in the method. And he kind of grabbed my brother's head like this. And as he started shaking, uh, started speaking in a very loud voice, he kind of started shaking it too. And I thought, well, that's a little aggressive. But my parents looked reasonably relaxed. And so I thought, you know, they put him up to this. So I guess this is all right. I'm just watching the whole thing. And so he begins to pray with a very loud voice. And he is shouting and he is spitting and he is shaking. And I am intrigued by this whole thing. And then he said something that struck me as interesting. He told God that God had to heal my brother. He did. I thought, this is not what conservative preacher talks like at our house. We never tell God what he has to do. And this preacher is shaking and spitting and shouting. And he's saying, God, you have to heal this boy. You have to heal him. And then he quoted scripture that we all know, love, and believe. By your stripes, he is healed. And he shook and he spitted and he shouted. And when we were all done, we were all exhausted on his behalf. And we went home. <laughs> now, uh, 
You know, it didn't take me very long as a kid even to figure it out. I've, I don't think I'm a cynic. I'd like to my think, think of myself as smart. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be preferable, Russell? Yeah, just smart. Smart little kid. I'm thinking, so if God heals and he heals everybody all the time, everywhere, why would people die? Jesus healed people from death, right? He raised some people back to life and, and then they died the second time. That's kind of a bummer, isn't it? Yeah. And then he, you know, what kind of a deal did Peter's mother-in-law get out of the healing? She had to get up and fix lunch. That, that's what she gets out of the story. It just kind of dawns on me that, well, I guess God, maybe he doesn't heal everybody all the time because I don't know anybody that's that old. You know, have you ever thought about that as a kid or now? You just kind of do the math, right? Then I'm going back to aerobic preacher and he, God has to heal. And I'm going, man, you've got a lot of confidence. And I'm thinking about all this stuff, right? I'm thinking about it. A few months later, Jim died. One night. I'm awakened in the middle of the night. My brother died. So, how do you process that? Way too soon, right? We've all been there. This is where we live, isn't it? God, how did that work? Aerobic preacher quoted scripture. You're good. You can heal. You do heal. He said you have to heal. You didn't heal. Some people try to clean that up. And they say, well, he didn't heal now, but he healed you in heaven. That's true. But that didn't work for a six-year-old. I went to the graveside service. He wasn't healed. He died. How do you process that? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I, I ended up with a, a box with questions on it. And that was the first box that I, I put the question in. I, I didn't figure that I was a little kid was going to figure that out, but maybe, maybe sometime I would. It went into my mystery box. A lot of things have gone into my mystery box over the years. And Sometimes God kind of takes some of those questions out and helps me understand a, a little bit more. But that was a great mystery for me. I know you can. I know you will. I know you do. But you didn't there. Now, I speed ahead a few years. Ann and I have a friend. Her name's Charlene. She did what the Bible tells us to do, which is we always pray. We always pray. And so she asked for us to pray. And we, along with some friends, we prayed. We probably put a little oil on her forehead. And we began praying. We didn't do church aerobically. We did church mellow. And so mellow church works like this. When you lay hands on someone, you just might take their hand or put your hand on the shoulder or maybe put a hand on someone's head, but it's kind of gentle. And the prayer is conversational. You kind of talk to God instead of shout and spit. By the way, he couldn't care less, the manner or the method. He cares about the heart and faith. So as we're praying for Charlene, she comes and she has a horrible gash on her neck extending down to her shoulder. It's, it's no longer bleeding. It's been cleaned up, but it's gaping and it needs to be closed. And the first thing I wanted to say was, why don't you go like to the emergency room and have this thing sutured? You know, that's what I would do. I'd pray all the way, but I'd be on the way. But Charlene came and she said, I'd like, I'd like for you to pray. So we, we can do that. Now, because we're kind of uh, mellow church and casual, you know, while I had learned that when you pray, I was supposed to fold my hands and close my eyes and bow my head, which, by the way, I usually pray now with my eyes closed because you distract me. And so it's easier for me to not be distracted, right? 
But I'd also learned that sometimes God does really cool things. And if you have your eyes closed shut, you don't get to see those cool things going. So we all prayed with our eyes open. And we're praying for Charlene. And we're just conversationally praying God's word and will. And we say, Jesus, we know that you're the healer. We know that there's nothing that she has done or could have done to ever earn anything. It's by your grace. We know that in your love and power, you came to restore what was broken in the fall. And we know that you love to heal sick people. And so we give gifts of the spirit of healings and cures to her. And we ask that you would heal this wound in her body. And we pray. We talked like that for a few minutes. The whole thing was about five to seven minutes. This is the most amazing thing. As we are praying, we start watching the gap in the wound close with new flesh. It was so slow you could hardly see it happening, but it was fast enough that you could see it happening. And we watched and we prayed and we talked to God and we gave him thanks. And the wound continued to close over the next few minutes until there was just a bright red stripe down where the skin, new skin had come across. And we thought, well, it'd be cool if the stripe went away too, wouldn't it? And so we kept on praying. And another minute or two, the stripe had disappeared. Her shoulder and her neck were completely healed as though no wound had happened. Now, that's one story. Many of you have stories as well. One story. What do I go home and think about? God, why Charlene? Really? Why not Jim? I mean, she could have gone to the doctor. She could have gotten stitches. I would have taken her to the doctor. Now I'm really confused. How am I doing for you this morning, by the way? Am I helping this thing? (laughs) Isn't this where we live? Really? Went into the mystery box as well. But what I do know this, there's no uncertainty in my mind at all about what our part is. Haven't you pretty much figured out that God like is infinite? That's big. And we are finite. That's not so big. And that we're going to spend all of everlasting life discovering more about God. He's creator. He's always going to be doing fresh and new things that surprise us and wow us and cause wonder. We're never going to have him all figured out. Why should we suppose that right now we should have parts of him figured out that we would like? Isn't part of the nature of faith having questions and even doubts and misunderstandings and still saying, I trust you. I trust your love and I trust your grace. But there's no uncertainty for me about our part. The Bible's very clear. And that's that we always come and we always ask. Always. It was decades later when a guy named James wrote the book in the Bible we call James. And in about the third chapter, he says this. Some of you know it. You can repeat the last couple of words with me. You have not because you ask not. We always ask first. Always ask first. And then he goes on in the last fifth chapter and he says this. Is anyone sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church who are elders. They're people who have grown in Christ, in their relationship with Christ, and the validity of their passion for Jesus and his grace and gifts in their life are obvious to others. So there's elders here at Evergreen that are in their 20s. There's elders here that are in their 80s. It's not chronological age. It's relationship with Christ. Call for elders of the church. And what are they to do? To anoint the sick one with oil. And this is what it says. And the prayer of faith will raise him up. And then it goes on to say, For 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what it says. So I don't understand all the mysteries, but I do know this. God can heal broken bodies. God does heal broken bodies. I don't understand why he does some, sometimes, some ways, and others, other times, and other ways. But I do know this. Our part is to always ask because Jesus came to fix broken bodies. Let's take a look at the second story. This is a fun one. It's about a guy who Jesus is kind of out wandering around in other places outside of Capernaum, but a a man with leprosy finds him, and we get to read about Jesus came to fix broken relationships. Notice verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with indignation. Some of your Bibles say with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But instead... Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. Leprosy, the word here is an umbrella medical term that's over a whole variety of very particular diseases, most of them relating to the skin. The form of leprosy that we're most familiar with is actually a neurologic disease where the nerves stop sensing pain. And as a result, people begin to lose skin and flesh and even limbs as a result. We don't know this man's particular form of leprosy, but we do know what was happening for lepers in Jesus' day. It goes all the way back millennia to early times. And the book of Leviticus chapter 15 talks about how lepers were to be treated. It was back in Moses' day, and there was as many as two and a half million people who for 40 years were out camping in the wilderness, and God gave a variety of regulations about how they were to live. Some of those were hygienic laws. And for people who had infectious diseases, it made sense for them to be quarantined so that there wouldn't be an epidemic that would go through this cluster of two and a half million people who were living and traveling together. And so lepers were supposed to be set aside and quarantined. And then after that skin condition was gone, they were healed. Then they would go to the priest who also functioned like a medical doctor and the priest would check them out. And if they were healed, he would say they were cleansed. And when they were cleansed, they weren't quarantined anymore. So they got to go to go back. And if it was a guy who was married and had kids, he got to go back and live with his wife and kids and extended family and in his tribe. And if he worked, he would go back to his job. Now, the other idea about leprosy in the Old Testament was it's a symbol or a metaphor of sin. And so by the time it came down to Jesus' day, the religious leaders had blended these two ideas and ended up making life horrific for lepers. What they said about lepers was, you have this condition, and so we're going to kick you out of social life. You have to leave your home. You cannot touch your wife. You cannot see your children. You cannot do your job. You are exiled, and you have to wander as a beggar shouting out to people, unclean, unclean, so they won't touch you. That's 
horrible enough. But then they heaped it on and said, your leprosy is because you've sinned. You are dirty. You're dirty before God. And we're going to make you an example of what dirty people should be treated like. There was judgment on top of broken social relationships, on top of physical illness. Notice when the man comes to Jesus, he's breaking all religious and social protocol. As he comes running to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he begs Jesus, please cleanse me. I know you can if you will. And Jesus is moved with emotion, compassion that feels for this man in his broken physical and social state. And he is angry at this environment that has put him in this condition, one ultimately of sin and other of religious leaders that were wrong. And in that emotion, Jesus says to him, I am willing, be clean. Notice that the word used is not healed, but clean or cleansed. Because ultimately, he didn't need to be healed just of leprosy. He needed to be proclaimed cleansed so he could go back to his family and his wife, his kids, his job, worship on Sabbath at synagogue. And Jesus cleansed him. Now, Jesus gave him a stern warning because Jesus ultimately wanted the guy to be fixed in his relationships. And and so he says, listen, there's some paperwork to do. Now, I've, I've healed you, but you need to be cleansed. You've got to go to the priest. You've got to go back. You know there's a deal. There's red tape here. There's hoops to jump. You've got to go back. You've got to offer the, offer the sacrifice. And when the priest says you're cleansed, then you can be restored to life as it was before. But, of course, the guy, he, he was too excited. He went and told everybody and created some problems for himself, undoubtedly, and certainly for Jesus as well. What's the point of the story? God came to fix broken relationships. I knew it was a crisis when I got the call at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Some of you know me. You would not want to call me at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. It's not a better, it's not one of the better moments of my life. Got a call, took the call. It was a crisis call. Yeah, they uh, had been conducting an adulterous relationship to partners, great couples, amazing young families, man and a woman engaged, long-term relationship of adultery. So I, I talk with her on the phone and how are you going to tell your husband? How should we do this? We decided I'd call him at work. I'd ask him to come by the office on his way home from work that there was something very important, serious that I needed to talk with him about. She came to the office. Husband comes. Wife is there. Sit down in the office. I said to him, your wife has something she wants to tell you. She told him the story. I left him for about 20 minutes. I came back and talked with him and prayed with him. And they left. The next year was hellish for them. Separated, back together, separation. The second year wasn't as bad. It was just miserable. And the third year, things were better. Back together and committed to the kids and working on the marriage. And there were a few smiles from time to time the third year. 
fourth year, fourth year, there was some laughter. It started feeling better. There wasn't a horrible tension in the room every time we were with them. And the fifth year, the fifth year, there were, there were seasons of time that nearly seemed like, like it had gone back to the way it was before. Race ahead. They have grandkids. The grandkids are growing up now. The grandkids cannot figure their grandparents out. In fact, they think their grandparents are weird and kind of yucky. The grandparents do have way too many public displays of affection. I mean, they just hang on each other and they smooch and arms around each other. And old people, it's just bad enough when parents behave that way. But grandparents, no. They throw these big parties for their wedding anniversary. They even celebrate half anniversaries uh, halfway to the end. It's unbelievable. These grandkids will never know why their grandparents are so crazy in love with each other. Because they found the long road back. Because... Well, all of us have lived life with broken relationships. What we do know about Jesus is that he can fix broken relationships. He can fix broken bodies. He can fix broken relationships. Let's go to the last and final story and see how Jesus sees his fix Fixes and heals broken spirits. Take a look with me at chapter 2. The story just continues. We'll spill into verse 1. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get Jesus and get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat walked out in full view of all of them. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You, you got to picture the story. We'll, we'll be quick. You've got to go there. They come. There's way too many people. They're not going to get into the studio apartment house thing. What are they going to do? They, they, want, they want their guy friend fixed. They, they want his body healed. They can't get him to Jesus. They have faith. If we can get him in front of Jesus, Jesus will heal him. They, they go up the stairs. I hope the guy didn't slip. They go up the stairs to the top of the roof, just strong enough to hold them. They start kicking at the plaster. Dirt starts falling down. Jesus' message is interrupted. They kick, and then they reach down to palm fronds, 
palm fronds. That's what they reach for. And they begin to tear those up. And then there's branches and there's sticks and a few rods of wood across. And they reach down and they pull those up. You, can, you know what's going on inside. 600 square feet, maybe one little window, a small doorway. It is nothing but dust and dirt and stuff falling on you. I guess the message was interrupted. And all of a sudden, the hole that was created as a skylight now is filled with darkness again as they're lowering their guy through it. And then all of a sudden, with a thud, he lands at Jesus' feet. Right in the pile of all the rest of this debris, there is a paralyzed guy. Now, do you notice in the story that the guy, we don't know what he thought. We don't know that he wasn't fighting all the way there. We have no idea if he wanted to be healed or not. All we know is that his four friends were committed. Jesus didn't even look at him and say, you have faith. He didn't know anything about this guy. He looks up and says, I guess you guys have faith. Jesus says, saw their faith. And in response to their faith, he looked at the man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know what was going on on the roof, but can I speculate for a minute? I think that they were upset. That's what I think was going on. They did not come for this Jesus to go spiritual on them. They could have gone to synagogue for that one. They wanted their friend healed. Jesus, by the way, in almost every other situation, asks people what they want. That's why when we pray, we ask people, what do you want? And whenever people said, this is what I want, then Jesus said, okay, quote, as is your faith, be it unto you. Now, these guys didn't speak their faith. He didn't say, hey, Jesus down there in the dust. We want you to heal this guy. They didn't speak it. They demonstrated their faith. And I think they might have wanted to shout down and said, you got it wrong. We didn't want him forgiven. (laughs) We want him healed. Jesus can heal. But every time he heals, it is always a road sign that points toward the ultimate healing that he came. Reconciliation of broken spirits from sin through forgiveness and a healed spirit and everlasting life. Jesus knew what they wanted and knew what he needed. And he said, your sins are forgiven. We know what the religious guys that were there, we know what they thought. Jesus outed them. What they thought was, this is blasphemy because only God himself can say, your sins are forgiven. And this is where Jesus first goes public with his identity as God. He, his favorite title for himself was, God, uh, was son of man. It comes out of the prophecy of Daniel where it said that the son of man would come. He would be Messiah. It's like a saying, son of God. Son of God, the eternal coexistent one with the Father and the Spirit, Son of Man, God come to live as man, the incarnation Son of God and Son of Man. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying to them. These were scholars in Old Testament prophecy. They knew what he was saying when he said, I'm the Son of Man. This isn't blasphemy. I am God. And that's why I can pronounce forgiveness of sins. And he says to them, so I'll give you a sign which is easier or harder to say, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk home so that you'll believe, he says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat, go home. And the man got up and took his mat and went home because Jesus primarily came to fix broken spirits. That's why around here at Evergreen, we celebrate a lot of things, but we celebrate the most of all 
the number of people that are committing their lives to Christ and that are expressing that in water baptism. And the last council meeting, just a few days ago, we were celebrating the first uh, nine months of the year and the two big numbers. And we have poppers and we shout and we holler and we celebrate because people coming to Jesus is the big, big story of God coming to fix broken things. And we celebrated last month, 137 people have committed their lives to Christ here in this last uh, calendar, the, the current calendar year. And uh, 64 of you have gone public with that and expressed that in water baptism. That's why we celebrate the big story because it's God's big story. So this is what we've learned today about Jesus. These five things. Jesus came to fix the fall. Jesus heals sick bodies. Jesus heals damaged relationships. Jesus heals our relationship with God through forgiveness. And Jesus responds when we ask. I still have a lot of questions in my question box, but there's some things I know for sure. God is pure love, and he is pure power, and he's pure grace. And nothing will ever separate you from the love and grace of God. I'm also convinced of this, that when we're broken, we always pray first. And when we pray, he always hears. And when he hears, he always responds. As Marley and the band have returned, they're going to give us a gift of a song. It comes right out of Romans chapter 8. We also sang a song earlier in the service. Let me read just a few of the first words, and then they're going to sing. And and as they sing, it's kind of a simple song to pick up. Some of you will probably want to start singing as well and making this a part of your prayer. No mountain, no valley, no gain or loss we know could keep us from your love. No sickness, no secret, no chain is strong enough to keep us from your love. How high, how wide, no matter where I am, healing is in your hands. How deep, how strong, and now by your grace I stand. Healing is in your hands. God can heal.